0: Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we're going to be discussing Alzheimer's with one of the leading experts in the field, bar none, Dr. Dale Bredesen. And we've interviewed him before for his uh, really epic book, The End of Alzheimer's. He's an amazingly innovative researcher and really leading the field and helping us understand the pathology of this disease and, more importantly, strategies practical, pragmatic interventions that we can take to not only improve it, but I believe more importantly, prevent the disease. So welcome and thank you for joining us, Dr. Bredesen. Thanks very much, Dr. McCullough. So um, the reason we're having you on is because you published a compilation, a case report of 100 people who's used your therapies, um, not necessarily through yourself, but through clinicians you're working with, I, th- I think, is according to the paper and reported the results on this. So maybe you can start there and then we can go back to, maybe share some of your results and then we can go back into, the, or maybe let's start here. What, it might be better just to frame this because there's not many people better than you posed to help us understand the the potential implications of this epidemic of Alzheimer's and what it has to impose on us as a population. And once we can understand that we can better appreciate the. Epic results you've had from these hundred hundred case reports. Yeah, thanks very much.
1: So you're right. This has been a major problem. It is a it's a global problem that is uh, set to bankrupt Medicare within the next about fifteen years. So this is a you know this is an epidemic, and just as we had major efforts to prevent polio in the past, of course. Uh, And prevent smallpox in the past. I mean, there needs to be a global effort to prevent Alzheimer's disease because this is a, a, a growing problem. It has now become the third leading cause of death in the United States. And that was reported recently by Professor Christine Yaffe and her group. So it is, it's on the rise and has been poorly treatable. And as you know, we talked before, um, we had previously published uh, case reports, initial 10, another 10, in, initial 10 in 2014, another 10 in 2016. And of course, one of the issues was, well, 10, that's not a lot of people. Uh, what does that really mean? Uh, and so uh, we published another 100 a couple months ago. These are 100 people who have documented pre and post cognitive testing, and not only did those 100 all show improvement, which is not to say that every single person does, those 100 all did, and these were from 15 different clinics of people who were using this protocol that we developed several years ago, And what's interesting is some of these people also had quantitative EEGs, showing improvement in their quantitative EEGs. Others also had MRI with volumetrics, showing improvement in volumetrics. Other ones also had evoked responses from the brain, showing improvements in evoked responses. So by all the criteria, these people showed improvement, subjective and objective.
0: So um, this is remarkable because to the best of my understanding, please correct me if if I misunderstood this, there is no conventional treatment for Alzheimer's. There's been many trials, but I believe every single one of them has failed. So I mean, there are treatments, but none of them reverse it, I guess. I mean, certainly. Yeah, that's a really good point. So
1: first of all, as you know, there are a couple of medications uh, Aricep, Namenda, that sort of thing. But these have a very, very modest impact. And the most important thing is, their improvement is not sustained and they don't change the outcome of the disease. So you get a little bump in improvement and then you go right back to declining. So the most important part of the protocol you and I have discussed before and the one that was published in the book is that the improvement is sustained. You're actually going after the root cause, as you know, of what is causing the cognitive decline. So that's a big difference.
0: Yeah. So in the, the core, if you could summarize your pr- approach uh, in one sentence, it would be to improve the ratio between syna- sy- synaptoblastic and sy- synaptoclastic activity, which is the brain's ability to create new neurons versus destroying them. So very similar to osteoclastic and osteoblastic. Exactly, this is creating synapses again. So you're creating and maintaining the synapses.
1: Okay, synapses, not the neurons, but the synapses, yes. Exactly right, yeah. Uh, And and so the the idea here is that we have tried to treat this illness without asking what causes it. And of course, in root cause medicine, of course, we want to know what's actually driving the decline. And when we look at that, it's typically, as you and I talked about before, it's various ongoing inflammatory things um, whether it's Borrelia, whether it's Babesia, whether it's herpes simplex, whether it's oral bacteria, or it's glycotoxicity with people with prediabetes and people with insulin resistance and things like that, or it is a atrophic phenomenon from low vitamin D, low testosterone, those sorts of things, or it is toxic exposure or vascular problems or trauma. So, so those are the big things. And, and you look at this, if you actually look at what's driving it, what you see is really interesting. The molecular biology of this disease shows that what we call Alzheimer's disease is actually a protective response. It's essentially a scorched earth retreat. You're pulling back and saying, we're not going to let this insult kill us, so we're going to scorch the earth, so it can't take advantage, whether it's bacteria, what have you, can't take advantage of what's there. And so you're literally downsizing. And as long as those insults are going on, you will be downsizing.
0: Yeah, and a central part of this discussion obviously uh, focuses on uh, beta amyloid, which is a protein that is highly correlated with Alzheimer's. Uh, and it's interesting because in your paper, you discuss the role of beta amyloid, which many people aren't aware of as, as an AMP, an antimicrobial peptide, uh, which uh, these, basically they're critically important for host immunity and they target ba- lots of organisms like bacteria, mycobacteria, viruses, fungi, protozoa. So can you discuss that? Because I think it's an, a really intriguing concept and really relates to this a scorched earth policy or a fact that you were uh, referencing earlier. Right,
1: so this is a really good point. You know, people have known for years that somehow amyloid beta is involved in Alzheimer's. It's clearly a mediator, and that's clear from the genetics, it's clear from the biochemistry. And yet, as you well know, all the attempts to remove it, saying, ah, this is the bad actor, that's all it is, let's remove it, everything will be good, these have failed. And of course, most recently, Adecanomap, which was so promising uh, and had and was claimed in early studies to look look very good, um, has turned out to fail. So here's the trick: this is turning out that amyloid beta is really part of the innate immune system. And its antimicrobial effect that you mentioned um, was first discovered and published by Professor Robert Moyer and Professor Rudy Tanzi at Harvard. So this thing actually has. A, again, a protective response. Not only is it an antimicrobial peptide, but it also binds some toxins. For example, mercury, other divalent mm-hmm. metals like iron and things like that. So this thing has multiple effects. It is part of your response to insult. And when, when you take that into account, you realize, fine to remove amyloid but please don't do it before you remove all the insults. And we've seen numerous people now who have had the amyloid reduced and gotten worse because the ongoing insults are still there.
0: Yeah, interesting. And I think just a week or two before we recorded this interview, there was a pharmaceutical giant Bojan that announced that they had, they halted phase two clinical trials with one of the, drugs that they were using to remove beta amyloid, uh, and uh, now this is the, the typical story for, the, for drugs used uh, in, the, in this area.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So, but you're absolutely right, Biogen removed the, they ended the trials basically for adecatumab.
0: So, um, what I'd like to talk about now is this misfolded proteins, um, and how the body Converts those back to normal. I didn't, I, it, part of the process, of course, is, involves heat shock proteins, and I'm sure you're really expert in that. But I'm new to, new to this, and when I started digging into it, I found, to my amazing surprise, that literally a third of the proteins that we make, the moment they're made, they're misfolded. Right. So thankfully, our body has a mechanism, heat shock proteins primarily, and uh, I'm sure there's others, that help to refold them. And if if the misfolding is too severe, then they help actually remove them. So can you expand on that, how that relates to Alzheimer's?
1: Absolutely. So what happens is you have a set of things that is actually required to make your cells function, um, including your neurons. And as things start downsizing, you start losing critical pieces and ultimately, of course, leading to loss of synapses and ultimately to neuronal cell death. And one of the critical ones, as you indicated, is protein folding, which is critical. And as you know, in all of these different neurodegenerative diseases, whether you're talking about Alzheimer's or Huntington's or Lou Gehrig's disease or Parkinson's or Lewy body, they all feature proteins that are aggregated and that are typically misfolded and they are not degraded appropriately. So you lose not only the the ability to fold, but the ability to degrade these proteins. And so that is a critical piece. And in fact, uh, you may be aware just recently, an article came out on a common neurodegenerative condition, uh, newly described, which is called late, L-A-T-E, which is essentially limbic uh, associated TDP43 encephalopathy. So in other words, this is a little bit like Alzheimer's, uh, not as common, but interestingly, relatively common, uh, slightly more common than Lewy body and slightly less common than uh, vascular associated dementia and much less common than Alzheimer's, but still one of the major players in elderly people. Uh, And this features TDP43, which is a protein that is involved in numerous things, including protein folding. So it fits in exactly to to what you're saying. And you're absolutely right. We lose that ability as we start to downsize, as you don't have appropriate energy, you don't have the appropriate trophic support, you don't have the appropriate hormonal and nutritional support. That is one of the things that goes.
0: Yeah, and it's, it tends to decrease as we age uh, and acquire all these unhealthy lifestyles. Right. So, and the other function, which you alluded to, is uh, basically removing the damaged proteins. And you know, that's I didn't realize that heat shock proteins actually are, are corollary of autophagy, which we'll talk about in a moment. But I want to finish up on heat shock proteins. I'm wondering in your interventions. Uh, if you have any specific strategies, and I'm thinking specifically of things like near infrared sauna that you've used, and if you have, what type of results are you seeing with the integration of that? Right. So, when we target ketosis,
1: when we target insulin sensitivity, when we target mitochondrial support, that typically allows you to generate the appropriate ability to refold. Misfolded proteins, and I think you're going hmm. to see an exciting work coming out. I just returned from uh, an exciting meeting in Australia, and one of the presentations was on the appropriate uh, upregulation of heat shock proteins in ALS. Hmm. Uh, so I, I recommend, in fact, you may want to you may want to uh, 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 talk with the group that that is focused on that, uh, and. Uh, I, think, I think you're going to see some exciting results coming out in the next uh, six to nine months on this whole approach. But with our approach, this is actually taken care of because you have all the pieces to uh, to do this. Now, you're absolutely right. You can induce the heat shock response. Mm-hmm. And it's part of what you're doing, as you said, by doing this combination of the sauna and then into the cold and then back to the sauna and then back to the cold, which, of course, as you know, has been used for many, many years um, as a nice approach. And I think that you know that, that is one of its mechanisms. You are recurrently activating this critical response. And there's no question it is going to be important, especially we you know in ALS, but likely in all of the neurodegenerative conditions.
0: So I really wasn't aware, at least I don't recall reviewing this, that the ketosis and insulin sensitivity improvement had independently improved heat shock proteins, but it makes sense. But it would seem there'd be a powerful synergy because heat shock neuroinfrared sauna shouldn't be viewed as a magic bullet. None of these interventions should be. They need to be used uh, collaboratively, and the synergy is far more powerful. So, have you? Uh, use the ketosis and insulin improving through the diet and cyclical ketosis that you're doing with the near infrared sauna or is that something that you haven't integrated into the strategy yet?
1: Oh yeah it's it's absolutely part of it yeah so this is if you look at the approach we've taken that absolutely includes especially initially as part of the detox uh, the infrared sauna but you're absolutely right it
0: also has an
1: effect on heat shock proteins.
0: Okay good perfect so yeah the uh, uh, I couldn't agree more to me it's 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 almost essential. It's probably one of my most important biohacking tools to stay healthy. Is a, is when I'm home, is a daily in, near infrared sauna, and I like the near infrared far better than the far infrared because I think it's. Uh, yeah, you you also get the uh, photobiomodulation benefits in addition to the all the other heat shock elevation, heat shock protein elevation, and the detox components. But as I mentioned earlier, that heat shock proteins, it, you know, if they're unable to Properly refold that protein. They will tag it with a molecule called ubiquitin, and then they uh, send it to this UPS, the ubiquitin protease, proteasome system, to for and target it for removal. But the, the and it's a corollary to autophagy. And you know, autophagy has gotten a lot of uh, good press lately. and it's, Well, it should be because it's, in my view, probably eighty percent or more of the population is not regularly gauging in this vital, essential cleaning and, repa- cleaning and repair process. So I'm wondering if you could uh, describe briefly how you're incorporating it into your, into your program.
1: Yeah, and I should mention, you know, not only, uh, as you mentioned, it's related. So th- there are three kinds of autophagy. There's the macro autophagy, micro autophagy, and then chaperone mediated autophagy so that there are multiple ways to recycle these components. And so specific proteins, for example, can be targeted, as you said, for chaperone-mediated autophagy, or as you said, they can also be targeted through the ubiquitin system. And actually we published, we did research for years in the lab on the linkage between this activation of protein folding and apoptosis. So in fact, if you fail to reform these, you literally activate an entire system that initially stops producing more protein. So it's basically saying, okay, we're not keeping up with this. So we're gonna shut this down. It attempts to refold. Then it attempts to destroy the proteins if it can't refold them. And then ultimately, if it, if it cannot, with all of those changes, cannot keep up with things, it literally activates programmed cell death through specific caspases. So there's a beautiful orchestrated program that starts with, are we keeping up with folding of proteins, and ultimately does step by step, but ends up, if you do not keep up with this, in cell death. So you're right. This is something where you want to intervene upstream, understand why this is happening. And then if you're unable to keep up with this, now at least increase your heat shock proteins so that you can refold. And in this case, you prevent the induction of programmed cell death.
0: Yeah. And you and I both know what it is, but for the audience, it's slight clarification, because there's a lot of confusion on this uh, between apoptosis and autophagy. And many people think that they're the same thing, but they're not. Autophagy refers to the uh repair or removal of the organelles within the cell but apoptosis is removal of the entire cell sort of like the 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 the, the suicide button and and as i understand that's mediated through the mitochondria and one of the reasons why you want healthy mitochondria because if they aren't healthy you can't initiate this event
1: right so two two separate in general programs so-called internal and intrinsic and extrinsic so yes mitochondria as you said um, those are the intrinsic ways to induce the programmed cell death. Um, and then there also is receptor-mediated programmed cell death, which is an ent- extrinsic approach. Mm-hmm. So two different ones. But, yes, ultimately, they both include factors that can come from the mitochondria. So, yeah, the, the, you're, you're absolutely right that the autophagy is something where it is, it is a recycling. And, in fact, what's interesting, if you simply shut down the recycling of the mitochondria, you will develop Parkinson's. So this is absolutely critical that you keep your battery sharp, you recycle the ones that are not working very well. And then on the other hand, as you indicated, if that fails, if ultimately you don't recycle, if ultimately you don't keep up with these various critical parameters, such as protein folding, protein degradation, it's appropriate, signaling, Uh, membrane potential, all of these things, then you will actually activate a suicide program. And of course, part of that is normal. We're activating the suicide program in our white blood cells so that you lose one million white blood cells to suicide every two seconds. And of course, you replace those as well.
0: So let's get back to autophagy, because as I mentioned, uh, it's my belief that I think is pretty well supported in literature that the vast majority of the public is not engaging in this process, primarily because they're insulin resistant. If you're insulin resistant, you cannot increase your AMPK levels, and then you're unable to inhibit mTOR, which is really one of the primary drivers of autophagy, mTOR inhibition. So there's, a, there's some confusion. I was confused up until recently, and I still may be confused about this, which is why I'm excited to dialogue with you about this, that thinking that autophagy is so great, you should activate it all the time. But you know, I think like most things in life, it needs to go in cycles. And there are times when you don't want to activate autophagy for certain. Uh, you should not be in constant autophagy. So I'm wondering what type of you – know, you've been doing this for a long time, and what have you evolved – as your optimal cycling mechanism or frequency for going in and out of autophagy. And how you do that and how you do it.
1: Yeah, it's a great point. So you know this is why um, we are interested in fasting. Of course, fasting is one of the best ways to do this. Uh, And you you can do this monthly. You can do this weekly. We are typically recommending the intermittent fasting approach. And then, of course, sleep is a critical piece. You get those hours in. Um, and then, as you indicated, you don't want to flood the system with, uh, you know, with the sugar and things like that that also inhibit. So all of these things are inhibitory. And you want to be able to use appropriate fasting and an appropriate diet to activate this autophagy. And if you activate it each night, we recommend on our approach 12 to 16 hours if you are ApoE4 negative. 12 to 14 is better. If you are ApoE4 positive, you want to go longer, 14 to 16 hours. And then there's nothing wrong with doing a longer fast. And as you know, uh, Walter Longo and his work suggests you do several days each month on the fasting mimicking diet or another approach essentially to inhibit mTOR. You don't want to keep stimulating that all the time with, appropriate, uh, with the amino acids that are stimulating. So that's the usual cycle, and typically we recommend about once a week. But again, a longer fast once a month is a good idea. It depends a lot on your BMI. So what we found is people who have higher BMIs respond better to this fasting early on. They're able to generate the ketones. As you know, if you now lose both the carbohydrates and the ketones, you end up with someone who just feels completely out of energy, and they actually take a step back on their cognition. So we want to liberalize and cycle them. So we are very careful when people are down below 20 on their BMI, and especially the ones 18 or below. We want to be very careful and make sure to cycle them once or twice a week, and I think, I think you were the one who recommended before twice a week, and I think that's a, a very reasonable frequency. So uh,
0: recommended what twice a week, the partial fasting? The, or-
1: essentially to keep metabolic flexibility to cycle out of ketosis. Oh,
0: you've got to week. do that. Yeah, you've got yeah. to. Especially for a low, a BMI of 18 is extraordinarily low. Right. I mean, that person they can't afford to lose any weight.
1: And so we, exactly right. So when we see people with cognitive decline, They are often either high on their BMI, in which case they tend to respond more quickly. They're able to generate these ketones. They're able to, they're clearly going to be insulin resistant most times. They can get into insulin sensitivity. They can generate the ketones and they tend to do well with their cognitive improvement. On the other hand, the tougher ones to deal with are the ones who are below 20 on their BMI, where now if you're, they're very fragile. If you're not careful, now they lose a little more weight as they're getting into ketones ketosis, and now they go backwards. So we, in fact, have to support them. These are the ones where often exogenous ketones can be very helpful early on.
0: Well, let's go to there. I, I still want to finish up on autophagy, but as long as you mentioned exogenous ketone, that was one of my questions. I'm wondering... And there's two types, essentially, the uh, ketone salts, which are less expensive, but probably not as effective, and the ketone esters, which taste worse, but they seem to be the real deal. Uh, I personally prefer the esters and use them myself when I need strategies to reduce oxidative stress, which we'll talk about later. So I'm wondering what your protocol is for integrating them into your approach.
1: Right, so we essentially have three different approaches. Number one, we would like in the long run to get you to make it so that you are generating endogenous ketones. That's the best way to go. Um, As a simple example, endogenous ketones uh, will uh, will be an inhibitory of NLRP3 inflammasome, so you're turning down that inflammation, which is involved not only with Alzheimer's, but also things like macular degeneration. Whereas if you take endogenous ketones and flood that system, you can actually create some degree of inflammation. So you want to be minimizing these in the long run. But for getting started, because the critical piece is we're trying to supply that energy and trying to move you from a state of uh, glycotoxic damage to a state of of ketosis uh, and a, a state in which you are insulin sensitive. So initially, we try it, again, with the long one, we want to get you on. Initially, we want to get this, we want to use either MCT oil, one way, measure your ketones, it's simple to do, and we want to get you into the, uh, ultimately, to the 1.5 to 4.0 millimolar beta-hydroxybutyrate. So that is the that is the goal, uh, to, to get you there. So again, essentially take this in a couple of steps. Step one, if you need to use exogenous ketones, you can start with MCT oil. If that doesn't give you the appropriate uh, ketone level, or if it's actually giving you problems with your LDL particle number, so we're now gonna balance these, then you can use the exogenous ketones as you indicated. And then we'd like to look at your LDL particle number and use that to titrate to make sure that your LDL particle
0: number is not too high. So just as a point of reference, and you may not be aware of this, but I think you'll appreciate it, is that there is a new ketone meter out. It's called ketonecoachx.com. And the reason it's so great is that the strips, which are an enormous impairment to doing regular ketone assessments, because they were initially $4 and Keto Mojo came out at $1, but Ketone Coach has them down to $0.70. Cents. But there's two other nice. benefits, is they're individually foil-packed and the, the device is about half the th- the size, the thickness, so it's real easy to, to travel with. Nice. So, and
1: Is this something that also looks carefully at the lower, because one of the issues with a lot of these ketone meters, they're not very good in that 0.2 to 1.0 range. So yeah. if this is good for there, it's, it's huge.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a really clever device, and I'm, this has become my device of choice at this point. But the uh, reason I wanted to ask you about the ketone Esters is that a friend of mine, William Curtis, who's a, a, a research associate of Dr. Uh, Richard Veach at the NIH, and he's done a you know he's done a lot of the landmark work in ketones. He has Park. The reason he became so interested in this is because he had Parkinson's disease, and, mm-hmm. and like many patients with PD, with another neurodegenerative disease, of course, uh, seems to have enormous improvement when he's taking these esters, and it and it just he just falls apart when he's not on them. And I'm just wondering if there's a similar observation with alzheimer's patients because i i I know there's a a mary and i forget her last name her husband had alzheimer's and passed away away from from it it. yeah newport Newport. yeah mary newport and uh, but he was using coconut oil and then eventually mct oil but she didn't really have good access and i think she was trying to work with beach but he didn't they couldn't get the ester stem at that time
1: so you bring up a really good point and yes, we see the same sort of thing with Alzheimer's disease. So what we've come to realize from the research over the years is that this, these diseases, these neurodegenerative diseases, whether you call, look at Alzheimer's, whether you look at macular degeneration, whether you look at Lewy body, Parkinson's, ALS, they all have one thing in common. They are specific, related to specific subdomains of the nervous system. And each of these has a unique requirement for nutrients, hormones, trophic factors, etc. Each one somewhat different. And in each case, there is a mismatch between the supply and the demand. So for most of your life, you're keeping up with that demand. With all of these diseases, you have a repeated or a chronic mismatch between the support and the requirement. So in in parkinsons it's quite clear as you know you can create parkinsons simply by inhibiting mitochondrial complex 1 so that specific subdomain of motor modulation which is what parkinsons is all about is the thing that is the most sensitive to reductions in mitochondrial complex 1 support therefore when people have this, you need to bring the supply back in line with the demand, and a critical way to do that is to supply the appropriate, uh, the appropriate ketosis, the appropriate energy. Now, if the person is continuing to be exposed to whatever chemicals are inhibiting complex one, and it's typically organics or it's typically as you know, sers related biotoxins, as long as these are ongoing, you're gonna get a very temporary relief. So the goal here is both to get rid of what is inhibiting complex one, and now to flood the system, to, to help the system by giving appropriate support for the energetics. And, and as you indicated before, I mean, energetics are critical. especially in Parkinson's, whereas with Alzheimer's, we're really talking about a mismatch in trophic support. You've got this ongoing need for, as you're making neuroplasticity. So it's really interesting in each of these ones, in each of these diseases, there is a different subdomain with its own unique set of requirements.
0: Okay, thank you. So let's get back to autophagy for a moment because um, I've had a long personal journey in this process. And have come to some, made a lot of mistakes along the way, like most of us do, and uh, have come to the conclusion, though, that for people with insulin resistance, the single most important step that they can take, independent of really looking at what they're eating, is to compress the eating window. And you referenced that earlier, the, those with the ApoE3s, which which is what I am, I think you said it was a fourteen to sixteen hour wind, intermittent fasting or time restricted eating window. Uh, and uh, those with APOE4 would be uh, four, 16, 14 to 16. 14 yeah. to 16. So that, to me, that seems a little bit on the low side. And you know I personally do an 18 hour to, and I try to get to 20 hours sometimes. Hmm. And, 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 and that's what I encourage people who are beginning this process to do first because just doing that, not even paying any attention to the, the counting calories or looking at what you're eating, like restricting carbs, will have a massive improvement in metabolic flexibility. So I'm wondering how you reach those numbers that you mentioned earlier, and if you perceive any negatives for a longer daily time-restricted eating.
1: Yeah, you know this is a really good point because the the 12 to 14 hour originally was based on on research of when you start to. Uh, when you go to sleep, for example, when you are now without eating, when you are fasting, how long does it take typically to kick into autophagy? And the answer was it's kicking in. And again, this, there's wide variation here. Um, it's around 12 hours. So you know, for the first several hours, you're not going to kick into this. Now, the, the reason we suggested longer for the APOE4 positives, as you know, if you are APOE4 positive you are better at absorbing fat and it tends to take longer to enter autophagy but this comes back to a really important issue you mentioned that you had looked at 18 and even 20 and so the important thing here and we see this again and again and again for the people who do the best is that they tweak the system constantly they're looking at their own responses and then they're looking at, okay, should I go a little farther? Should I go a little shorter? So it depends a lot on whether you are very low on your BMI, on whether you're able to generate ketosis, or whether you are now converting. Uh, where do you stand? Obviously, you've done extremely well with doing the window eating. Now, so let me ask you a question. Do you suggest that beyond this, as, as uh, Walter Longo has suggested, that you go for a, a more extended period because-
0: Oh, just, absolutely. That's, a, that
1: glycogen.
0: that's the summary of my most recent book, which is actually just published last week. Uh, it's called Keto Fast. And I initially decided to write the book because I was enamored with multi-day water fasting and the metabolic mm-hmm. power that that had. And historically it's been used for many, many centuries and virtually every major religion in the world use it. But then I came to realize, somewhat similar to Walter Longo, that- Probably not a good strategy for different reasons though, compliance was his primary concern, but the, I think metabolically, when you 're detoxifying and because most of us live in the 21st century now and we have exposure to all these fat soluble toxins get stored in our fat, that multi day water fasting doesn't really support your liver that well, exposures to this toxin is released, so that from that reason I, I decreased it and I, re, and I recommend. Well, I do personally do a 18-hour daily fast to 20 hours, and then once a week. I was doing it twice a week, but my weight was dropping too much. So once a week, I won't eat for a day. So it'll essentially be a 42-hour fast once a week. And I think that that really gives me a boost in activating autophagy because you're going to get some at 18 hours, but you're not going to get – I mean, it's just minor compared to what you do at a longer one. And I, and I can tell that because my glycogen levels de- get depleted. And of course, I'm not eating, so my, there's nothing in my bowel, so I'll lose weight from that perspective. But I'll lose glycogen, and I know that because I'm losing water weight. And I'll typically lose four pounds when I do that, and I typically gain four pounds the day I eat. So, Interesting. Okay. So, yeah, so I think that
1: those, are the, the, those numbers basically came from what does it take to enter this state of autophagy and, of course, to, with it, to become more, more sensitive as you're ending, essentially, you're running out of the glycogen, as you indicated, um, and you're now, it's now helping you to get into more of a ketone-based metabolism.
0: So, uh, one of the reasons that we do this, and it's not typically referred to, but uh, the observation is, is that it increases NAD plus levels, which are really Very important for a variety of functions in our body. Uh, But it also increases NADP, it increases NAD plus levels by 30% when you do this type of multi-day fasting or two-day fasting. So that is useful. But what I another component of time restricted eating or intermittent fasting is that even though you're eating in a restricted eating window, it's best not to eat. And I think this is universally acknowledged, at least from knowledgeable clinicians that you don't want to eat a few, at least a few hours before bedtime. And when I was doing some research and a literature review on NADPH, I, lo- I learned that the single biggest consumer of NADPH, which is essentially the true cellular battery, of your, the true battery of your cell, because it restores the reductive potential to recharge your antioxidants, that the, the largest consumer of that was the creation of fatty acids. So if you're eating close to bedtime, then you're going to not be able to use that to burn that energy, those calories as energy, and you're going to have to store them some way. And to store them, you have to create fat. So you're basically radically lowering your NADPH levels, which to me is one of the most profoundly useful metabolic justifications for not eating before you go to bed, at least three hours.
1: Yeah, and we have the same. And we call the approach we take keto flex twelve three because it is generating mild ketosis. It is flexitarian. You can do it if you're a vegetarian or not, um, and it is a minimum of twelve hours fast, and then as you indicated, three hours before bedtime.
0: Yeah, I, I actually kind of do like six hours before bedtime because well, I, yeah. I like I'm an OCD on it. I, I want to make sure that there's you know, I'm optimized. And it's, it seems to work pretty well. But here's another strategy. You know, there's, there's a lot of great polyphenols, uh, berberine, resveratrol, uh, curcumin, and, and uh, fisetin, and a variety of others that we know have profound influences and impacts on autophagy. And I'm wondering if you've integrated them into your program in some way to augment the benefits of autophagy aside from the, the nutritional timing of your food.
1: Yeah, so it's a really good point, and it brings up the fact that, as you know, t one was identified as a critical molecule, both for longevity, and it's been studied extensively for its effects on longevity, but also for its effects on Alzheimer's disease. So SIRT1 is actually associated with an increase in the production of ADAM10, which cleaves the APP, which on the non-Alzheimer's side. So it's a very interesting molecule, and in fact, what's interesting, ApoE4 actually enters the nucleus and down-regulates the production of this critical molecule. So you can see one of its many effects on Alzheimer's disease. Well, when SIRT1 is made, it is actually made in an auto-inhibitory fa- uh, fashion. So it's just like having a, a gun in a holster. It's not active. So what then removes that auto-inhibition and lets it become active? Just what you had said, NAD+. So NAD activates the SIRT1, and of course, so does resveratrol. So this is why people take resveratrol, also why people take nicotinamide riboside. So these are both activating this program, which is moving you from one Essentially, use of one approach with your resources, which is more of a pro-inflammatory approach, to now a longevity approach, a change in your metabolic pattern. And that includes activating things like autophagy and also having an anti-Alzheimer's and a pro-longevity effect.
0: So are you you actually using them specifically? Yeah,
1: so we use both nicotinamide riboside uh, and uh, resveratrol.
0: Interesting. And do you, are you using them every day? That's a, that's an interesting question, because, you know, I've I'm not sure that every day use on the polyphenols, not nicotinamide, riboside obviously not kind of polyphenols it's a, yeah. it's a NAD plus precursor. But the polyphenols may be the wisest strategy. I thought it was initially, but then I've, I've come to the conclusion that it may not be. Corsetin <laughs> is another one too. I forgot. Yeah,
1: corseting is, is turning out to be very interesting. And as you know, corseting also has an interesting impact on senescent cells.
0: That was my next question. I was going to go into senolytic therapy because there was an interesting study published last month on the benefit of that in Alzheimer's.
1: Right. So I think, you know, the, the, I think senolytic therapy is going to be interesting. As with so many of these things, I think that we're going to ultimately determine that senolytic, senolytic therapy is... Adding a little bit like saying, you know, you're going to live longer if you take metformin. Well, actually, if you do the right thing, you don't necessarily need metformin. Right uh, agreement. Because you're doing the wrong things that metformin helps you. And I think, you know, senolytic therapy, we're going to have, find the same thing. Yes, if you're, t- you're getting the appropriate uh, lifestyle, getting the appropriate diet, um, then you're doing what the senolytic therapy is designed to do anyway. But yes, quercetin, as you mentioned, is one of the things that's been demonstrated to have this interesting senolytic effect. And I think that that's going to turn out to be an important way uh, to to impact a a number of age-related conditions, including neurodegeneration.
0: I would suspect you're not using it clinically now, though because it's still really premature. Uh, and is, the, the premature. bioabsorption of these polyphenols, like quercetin, for example, is just horrendous. I mean, you don't, and if you look at the studies that in animals, I mean, they're injecting this, they're not giving it too morally <laughs> because they just can't absorb enough to do, to do benefits. And fysitin would be another one. Those are the two big polyphenols. Uh, Uh, So you're right. What we
1: are doing right now is coming straight from the 30 years of basic research. We are looking directly at what changes the balance of cleavage of APP, and there's a whole set of things that we've been talking about that all change that balance from pro-Alzheimer's to anti-Alzheimer's. And you can literally trace the pathways from NF-kappa B. You can trace the pathways from estradiol, from vitamin D and on and on and on. So we're doing everything to change that balance toward, a, as you mentioned earlier, toward a synaptoblastic balance.
0: So I, I'm sure you're familiar with urolithin A. Um, it's a metabolic byproduct of uh, pomegranate. Is, is probably the largest source of these elagic acids and elagotannins. tannins. Uh, but this urolithin A seems to have some profound benefit in neurodegeneration, neuroinflammation. I'm wondering if you've Looked at that, or have integrated that into your program.
1: You know, it's interesting. It's a good point. We have not integrated. Of course, uh, we're fine with people eating pomegranate, but we've not recommended that people take that specifically as an extract or anything like that. So, um, as we're you know as we're going along, we're looking at how we can continue to tweak this program. And I think for each person, the most important thing so far has been continue to optimize. It's not the old fashioned in and out prescriptive medicine where you write a prescription and then you ne- don't change anything. We're always looking at what can improve the person's status and it depends a lot on what their biochemical background is. But we have not specifically used that, so it's a good point.
0: Yeah, and if you're interested, uh, the, be- the highest concentration would be in the peel itself. So, pom- And you can get okay. pomegranate peel. In fact, most of the studies are done with pomegranate peel extract, so why not use the peel? problem is it's a very, very bitter polyphenol, and you have to make a capsule out of it because there's no way you're gonna convince anyone to swallow that. Uh, but I think it could be very useful taken before they go to bed. I mean, if I had Alzheimer's, I'd probably take that.
1: Interesting, be, okay. a useful
0: right. strategy. Just to get, and you can get the pomegranate peel, uh, peel powder on Amazon, and then just get some capsules and you know, make it yourself, so it's easy to do. And it's relatively inexpensive. Interesting. Um, so the other point I wanted to discuss, and this goes back to the NAD, and I was not aware that certain one had an influence on A, uh, APP, A, APP. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did not know that. Thank you for sharing that. But um, the oxidative stress, and this is something I've become passionate about in the last few years and uh, with respect to reducing it through pervasive exposures that virtually every single one of us viewing this has and that is the radio frequency exposures from our wi-fi and our cell phones that seems to, there seems to be some fairly powerful convincing evidence of the mechanism which ultimately results if i can just summarize it here briefly in these activations of voltage gated calcium channels which Re- allow the release of extra nitric oxide and superoxide in the cell, which causes peroxynitrite. And peroxynitrite damages, causes ionizing, very similar damage to ionizing radiation in the DNA, but it also causes damage in the stem cells and the mitochondria and all, uh, proteins, cell membranes. So the, the issue becomes that when you damage the DNA, obviously our our body has its profound. Magnificent repair systems that were developed years before EMF ever existed. Right. Man made EMF. So, um, the, that primary one is PARP, poly ADP ribose, and polymerase. Yes. Um, and the, the way that it works, and I'm sure you know this, I'm just saying it for the benefit of the people watching this, is that it sucks out. Uh, NAD, many don't know this, but NAD has within it, within the molecule of NAD, is an ADP molecule. Mm -hmm. And that's what it does. It sucks out that ADP molecule from from NAD, and not just one NAD, but 100 to 150 of them to to repair every single break of DNA. And it creates this matrix that allows the DNA repair enzymes to go and, and fix the damage. And that's all well and good. But if you continually damage it, you're just activating PARP continuously, and you're Decimating your NAD plus level, lot allowing CERT1 to work and do its magic and all the other benefits that NAD plus has. So, I'm wondering if you've ever looked at specifically reducing EMF exposures like cell phones and Wi Fi. And, and it, it, it makes a lot of sense that it would benefit this because the, the highest density, one of the tissues with the highest density of voltage gated calcium channels is the brain. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, So,
1: and and you've mentioned this before, this is a critical area. And the big problem we've had with this so far is that we can measure your NF Kappa B activation. We can measure your various nutrient, uh, what your status of of hormones, nutrients, magnesium, you know, on and on and on. We can measure, and we typically, with our approach, we measure 150 different variables. There is no simple way to measure the effect of EMF on a given person's nervous system. I look forward to the day when we can do a test and say, aha, this person has 27.2 on their effects on their voltage-gated calcium channels because of EMFs, because then we'll really be able to alter that. For now, the best we can say is, uh, just as we go after biotoxins and chemotoxins, this is a physical toxin and so the best we can say is minimize that to the extent you can it, you've, as you mentioned before you can certainly measure the exposure we just don't have a good way yet to measure its effect
0: on your brain well i think you do i mean you're doing the measurements i mean you've got all the inflammatory markers i mean the uh, the list of things that you test for is uh, amazing I mean, it must cost, I don't know what the, maybe you can tell, it's like $10,000 to do all those tests. I mean, they're very comprehensive. So you yeah, should. We see now some have it stuff. down,
1: you can do the initial tests for about $1,000. So it's much better. And of course, my hope in the long okay. run is that we'll be able to do this and that and insurance companies will recognize it's a good thing for all of us. That's Let's true. prevent this instead of dealing with it once it's there.
0: Could, couldn't and agree more, but couldn't you look at those inflammatory markers? And then do you look at 2-deoxyguanine? Two, two
1: so yeah so 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 deoxy uh, so so the 8-O-HDG. 8 ohdg um, yeah i forget what the they call it yeah is that's a common is. one for dna damage but as right. you know there are many causes oh, of sure. that from, oh, sure. you know smoking uh, to uh, exposure to radiation to you know on and on lots of things and in fact just having a low ascorbate level will increase your 8OHDG for example so you're right, that's, a, that's an indirect way, but it mm-hmm. doesn't tell you what's actually coming from the EMFs. But you're, you're right, and I think But, that but if you did an
0: intervention, you measure it, you have a baseline, you remove the EMF and you see it decreases, that's kind of a clue, wouldn't it be?
1: It's a good point. You could do a before and after and hold everything else constant and mm-hmm. see if you can actually pick that up on 80 HDG. Interesting and I don't point.
0: think that's a terribly expensive test. I mean, it's, I think yeah. it's probably less expensive than many of the tests that you're currently running.
1: Yeah, it's actually, it's not a terribly expensive test. Uh, And so that's, it's a reasonable possibility. And it it would be interesting. I'm not aware that anyone has shown that just the presence of of, uh, EMFs will bump your 80 HDG, but it would be very
0: interesting to know that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, let me see. I think those are basically most of the questions I've compiled because I had to opportunity because i I love to review the literature and my passion now is longevity and see if i can't keep this body healthy enough to stick around for another 30 40 years and have all the functioning that i do now especially cognitively which is you know certainly a concern for alzheimer's i think most people watching this are aware of the dangers and the damage of alzheimer's and no one wants to lose their brain so for me the benefit of engaging in these processes is to just assume that you're going to get alzheimer's just assume it and be proactive because there is no question there's not a micro doubt in the world that this disease is far easier and i'm sure you can i want you to discuss that or at least comment on this Is far easier to prevent than it is to treat
1: absolutely and what we're seeing is actually goes slightly beyond that so as you know when you take a typical vaccine you've got to have a vaccine before, it's only a prevention. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing with Alzheimer's is really interesting because it is very good with prevention and early reversal. So we see people who are now symptomatic. Now, as they become later and later and later in the disease, we see some improve, but it's harder and harder later in the disease. So you're you're absolutely right. This is all about prevention and early reversal. Those are the people where we see virtually 100% response. And this is why I think there needs to be a global effort to decrease the global burden of dementia. And I should say, we're just now just starting a clinical trial. We've been trying to get IRB approval for years. We actually started back in 2011 and were turned down a couple of times. And then more recently in 2018, this has finally been approved. So we're starting a trial uh, with Dr. Ann Hathaway, Dr. Deborah Gordon, and Dr. Kat Toops. Uh, who are all seeing patients as part of this trial. So we're very excited to see what the trial will show with this approach, because certainly anecdotally, we're hearing all the time, and as you mentioned, we just published a paper a few months ago on 100 patients who showed Mm -hmm. documented improvement.
0: Well, congratulations on the IRB approval. That's a long and hard victory to get, because I know you've been struggling with that for for quite a while.
1: And as you know, it's hard to get people to approve multivariable approaches. Right, that was the big issue. that's the way our body works. We need these multivariable approaches. And there just has been no mechanism to get these approved in the past.
0: Well, congrats. That was the big issue. So that's that's Mm -hmm. fascinating to hear that they approved that. We finally got some common sense. That's great. So uh, I wonder if you could comment on this, too, that if a person is integrated all the things that we're talking about and that you you recommend in your treatment strategy to to treat Alzheimer's, Mm -hmm. if virtually, if you started now before you have any signs that essentially you could be immunized and the likelihood that you would ever have this type of dementia would be virtually nil. Would that be fair to say?
1: So this is, so of course, nobody has those data yet. But my argument has been exactly that. This should be, and can be, as of today, can be a rare disease, which is what it should be. And Mm -hmm. in fact, we should be ending it with the current generation. This has been the scourge, as you know, of our generation. And this should not even be an issue in our children's generation. They should be all preventing this. And this should be a very rare disease. And so that's exactly what we've been arguing. And I couldn't agree with you more. Now, are you still going to have, you know, there are less than 5% of all Alzheimer's is familial Alzheimer's disease. Can we impact those people as well? We don't know yet. We're just working with a few of those. So, you know, we'll know in the future. But I think that um, I am convinced that, in fact, we could today. If everyone got an appropriate prevention, make this a very rare disease.
0: That's great, and I'm, and I'm reminded I interviewed an ophthalmologist recently, whose name escapes me, and he wrote a, mm-hmm. did some incredible research on age-related macular degeneration. Mm-hmm. Uh, being an ophthalmologist, he's kind of he's basically the modern-day Weston Price, but mm-hmm. instead of a dentist, he's an ophthalmologist, and he looked he scourged the ancient ophthalmology textbook from the mid 18th. 1800s to the current day, and found, and it's widely assumed by virtually every ophthalmologist that we've always had age-related macular degeneration. It's not true. It never started, and really, it was it was never described before 1900. It wasn't just didn't exist. Interesting. Interesting. So, so I'm wondering what the what your understanding of the incidence of Alzheimer's was in about that time frame. Is it a similar rare occurrence?
1: Well, that's a good point. Of course, it was described in 1906 by Alzheimer. Um, On the other hand, if you look back at the ancient Ayurvedic texts, and we've published on this in the past, uh, Dr. Ramohan Rao, uh, who's an Ayurvedic physician, was a researcher in my laboratory, and we worked together for many years. And so in the ancient Ayurvedic texts, they do describe dementia. Now, of course, they didn't have the appropriate stains and didn't have the appropriate autopsy to determine whether this was Alzheimer's, but of course, even and Marcus Aurelius is another one who mentioned dementia a few thousand years ago. So certainly the phenomenon of dementia has been around for thousands of years. What's not clear is whether it is the same as today. And as you know, all of us um, hominids uh, were APOE44, that was the primordial gene. So the APOE3, that you and I carry only appeared 220,000 years ago, and then ApoE2 appeared 80,000 years ago. So, the question of you know, when did dementia appear, it certainly has been around for at least a few thousand years.
0: Okay, but we just don't know what, and that's an artifact of not having this, the same diagnostic tools available to make that differentiation, but likely it was much lower.
1: Likely it was much lower, exactly.
0: Safe to assume on that. Well, uh, I want to thank you for your time, for all the effort, the years of of clinical uh, work that you've put in to help us understand this disease at a better level, and even more importantly, not only understand, but develop practical strategies that can not only treat, but more importantly, prevent the disease. So you're doing a great work out there, and I really commend you for it.
1: Thanks, Dr. McCullough. This, I think we're all in a very exciting period because I think we're going to see a decrease in all of these. These chronic illnesses are going to be labeled ultimately 20th century illnesses that we mostly get rid of in this century.
0: Yeah. And now certainly uh, people can get your book. It's still every bit as useful today as it was when you first wrote it. It's the end of Alzheimer's. But are there any other resources where people can follow you at?
1: Yeah. So they, yeah. So they can follow me on uh, Dr. Dale Bredesen on, on Facebook. Um, there's also a website uh, which is uh, drbredesen.com, um, and we have uh, another book that will be coming out called The First Survivors of Alzheimer's. We have some wonderful first-person stories from people who were diagnosed and then got better, and they write about their stories. This will be coming out around the end of this year.
0: Terrific. All right. Well, thanks for all you're doing. It's been a gr- great pleasure to connect with you again.
1: Great to talk to you, Joe. Thanks again.
0: All right.